If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, uh, turn to Matthew uh, chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. You'll notice in the worship guide that we have uh, dealing with 11 and 12. Uh, we will, will not deal with uh, parts of 11 and we'll hold off on dealing with 12 next week. But uh, so far uh, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, we've seen uh, in chapters 5 through 7, we have heard of the teaching of Jesus, the messages of Jesus as he has sought to teach us. Um, we've been introduced to his uh, work of ministry in chapters 8 and 9, which uh, included uh, his involvement in the lives of those who are hurting and suffering, who are sick, uh, those who have diseases, those who are marginalized, those who um, were outcast. Uh, and then last week, as it's already been referenced today, uh, we considered his mission uh, in chapter 10. And all of these, I believe, are essential uh, to understanding uh, his purpose. And that is, we found in chapter 1 of Matthew's gospel, uh, that his purpose is that he came to save his people from their sins. So, I think at least by now we should uh, begin to understand and see and grasp that uh, his teachings, uh, his ministry, his mission uh, are all a part of this work and come together uh, for this purpose. Uh, his message, uh, we are reminded, calls his listeners to and, and continue to cause his listeners to consider their heart's condition. That is the the law does not save, and men look to the law to save them. The law is a means of salvation, uh, but there is the heart of the law that is embraced by the heart of man with the intent to lovingly please God while understanding uh, that the law is not a means of salvation but reflects the heart of God. It won't save, um, but it is shown in the heart of those who are believers, those demonstrating a love for God. His ministry directed uh, toward the sinner, the outcast, the hurting, the sick. It causes listeners and the viewers to grapple with their own sense of self-righteousness uh, that often cause them to bypass the sick and the hurting. Uh, to Booney, even as you were alluding to just a moment ago, even now with the church where we uh, we forget about the outcast. We forget about uh, those who are struggling. And just most recent this week, we've been reminded that we forget about uh, those unborn children whose lives are being taken every week. There may be an abortion clinic open today, I don't know. But definitely tomorrow morning, uh, there will be an abortion clinic, more than one, open uh, and some uh, some lady will walk in uh, and the life of an unborn child will be taken. And by and large, I mentioned that uh, because as I was talking with a friend of mine this past week and, and even uh, wrote a little bit as we sent it out, uh, uh, sent out the prayer request to you as our church family, uh, reminded how over the course of the last almost 50 years, the church for the most part, the larger part of the church, not all local churches, but the church as a whole has either become silent, giving into the fact and thinking that, well, it's here, we can't do anything about it, or 
uh, even to the point of embracing it and supporting it. Uh, and yet there have been a few faithful churches who have continued to stand uh, against uh, abortion. And I'm not talking about standing against it necessarily politically, though at times we have to do that. It's not that we're trying to legislate when we're standing in that way. It's not that we're trying to legislate morality. What we are trying to do is we're trying to call a culture to understand this is wrong. God's Word has said that it is wrong, and it is wrong, and no matter what we do in the way uh, of our affairs in trying to write laws and put into place laws or even to have judges make judgments that would say that it's right and therefore open the door, it's wrong. And those are the things that Jesus did, and we're going to look a little bit later on. Those are the things that John the Baptist did, and those are the things that we as a church must do, and those are the things that true believers will do. They will do that. And then, as we saw last week, uh, the mission is not an easy mission. It comes at a great personal cost. It can only be accomplished when uh, deliberately it's embraced and it's deliberately engaged in. So we can meet and we can talk about sharing the gospel. We can talk about being on mission. We can talk about the fact that there are lost people who need to hear the gospel. Uh, but if all we ever do is talk about it, if we don't embrace it, if we don't engage it, uh, then it, will, will, it won't be accomplished. Um, the workers uh, are called into the harvest field to work. And these workers are empowered by the Lord of the harvest. But there are no guarantees we saw last week. There are no guarantees regarding personal safety. Um, th there's a reason for that. And we've already heard about that reason. Is that the world hates God, hates His mission, hates His purpose. They're going to stand against it. There's going to be opposition. In fact, as we look on into Matthew uh, over the course of chapter 11 and 12, we're going to see that opposition. Matthew intends for us to see it. The Holy Spirit intends for us to see it. Uh, I was kind of reminded of this uh, uh, this past Wednesday night when our children were uh, given their presentation and I'm reminded that uh, Nora said that she wanted to be a missionary. And as soon as she said that I want to be a missionary, uh, I thought about her. Uh, because Nora, uh, we don't know if God will ultimately uh, bring you to that. I, I hope and pray that He does. But you, as well as all of us, we need to understand that with that, that work of evangelism, that work of being on mission, that work of sharing the gospel comes at great personal cost. And it is intended to be that way because God is sending out sheep uh, as He is sending them into wolves. And wolves seek to eat sheep. But when God sends them, and as God sends them and sends us, we go without, as we saw last week, without fear of life, without concern for those things. We go because He sins and He empowers. And my prayer for you, Nora, is that God would ultimately send you out as a sheep into the midst of wolves. But we know that we were being called on as well uh, to go uh, and being as gentle uh, as doves. 
holding up as we have to do even now in the world that we live in. Hold up these truths. Hold up these values. Live them. Speak them. Point people to them at whatever cost uh, may come. The Holy Spirit intends to show us what to expect in the way of the gospel being misunderstood, opposition to the gospel, uh, and what we can expect from God as we work through these things. There were varying responses to Jesus' um, messianic work. There remains varying responses to the gospel, and we need to understand that. Varying responses to the atoning work of Christ. Matthew chapter 11, let's look at verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. That's kind of the end of that teaching section that we just, that we just moved out of as we completed chapter 10. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go into wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he was a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. It's interesting that Matthew turns to this account, except for the fact that he just stated that Jesus had completed uh, a set time of instruction with his disciples that ended with him sending them out and telling them what they should and could and would 
experience. In verses 2 through 5, we find something that we wouldn't expect to find. We hear that John the Baptist has doubts as to whether Jesus is the one whom John had said he was. We notice that Jesus wasn't critical of him. Jesus sends his disciples back with a testimony that is to reassure him that he was, in fact, correct. Jesus is the Messiah. We looked at Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. We know that John was in prison, and we'll find out why. Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, we hear this. So with many other exhortations, he, talking about John the Baptist, meaning John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod uh, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. See, John had stood in the face of culture, in the face of his community, uh, and he had spoken uh, to those who were poor and said that uh, you are sinners, you need to repent. And he had looked at, so to speak, in the face of uh, the government official and said, and you are a sinner and you need to repent. And here's specifically what you've done and here's specifically what you need to repent of. Now, I want you to know uh, that's not popular. It wasn't popular then, uh, and it's not popular today. In some places, it will get you arrested today, just like it got John arrested. In some places in the world, you'll be thrown in prison. Um, I, I really don't think that we are that far from that here in the United States. And I'm not just saying that to try to incite fear we just can't continue to be the way we are because we have found that the church has been marginalized. And not only is the church being marginalized, the church is being uh, minimized and the church is minimal even in that because so many who profess Christ don't believe in God. They don't believe in the atoning work of Christ. They don't believe the truth of God's Word. Therefore, uh, they acquiesce, they give in, as we have seen over the course of decades. My point is, is that it just stands to reason that with everything shifting the way that it's shifting now, if we continue to stand and say that these things are wrong and that this is right, therefore you are wrong, that you need to repent, it just stands to reason that there will be persecution. It just stands to reason. Why am I saying that? Well, I want us to know that's what took place with John. And here's what happened to him. He was put in prison. And while in prison, the Scriptures tell us that he became discouraged and under spiritual attack, for sure. And he began to doubt if Jesus was the Christ. Now, I'm not here justifying any doubt. I don't think it could be commended. don't think it should. But I think we can identify with John's struggle in some ways. We're not in prison. We're not facing cruel hardship of a Roman prison. Uh, there's certainly been times that doubt has crept into our lives nevertheless. Difficult circumstances. Struggling with family issues. Struggling with financial issues. 
struggle in relationships, loss of job, maybe sickness. There are a number of things that come about in the course of our lives where we are faced with whether we are going to trust in what God has said. We're forced to. We're forced to give consideration to those things. And we can begin to doubt. Begin to doubt the reality of God's grace and mercy. We can begin to doubt His sovereign care. Begin to doubt His concern for us and our family. Maybe even the reality of our own salvation or the reality of salvation at all for anyone. David Platt recalled a few quotes relating to the reality of doubt. Share these with you. Alistair McGrath writes, Doubt is natural in our faith. It comes because of our human weakness and frailty. Unbelief is the decision to live our lives as if there's no God. It is a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that He stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is the the, the wistful longing to be sure of the things that we trust. John MacArthur stated it this way. He said, when the New Testament speaks about doubt, it is speaking about doubt as it relates to believers, not unbelievers. Doubting is something that believers do. You have to believe something before you can even doubt it in this sense. You have to be committed to it before you really begin to question it. And it is in the thrust and the throes of life that these questions come up. Are these things really true? These things that I have been taught, these things that I profess, these things that I say are true, are they really true? We're call, we call them into question. In fact, every time we run into a hardship in the course of life, what do we do? We either have to rest in what we know that is true, and that is our belief and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His atoning work and the sovereign care and purposes of God. We either rest in those things or they're brought into question. Are they really true? The point is, John's doubt, as I said, though not commendable or justifiable, is understandable and natural in the context of, thing, of faith. Now think about it for a moment. Here's a man that pointed to Jesus and said in essence, here is the Messiah. We already have witness and testimony of that. In fact, he points his followers to Jesus and said, I, I must decrease, he must increase. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And yet he gets in prison in a Roman prison where things are hard and Jesus is not in prison with him. Jesus is on the outside. His ministry is growing. And I don't believe that John was worried about the jealousy. He was looking ahead, not understanding completely how the Messiah was going to work these things out. In his mind, the Messiah had come and in his mind, he was the righteous judge. 
He was the one that was going to judge between right and wrong. And John the Baptist had stood up and had looked in the face of Herod and said that you're wrong and you're a sinner. And he had looked at the face of others and because of that he had been put in prison. And Jesus is out. And there would be a natural inclination, I believe, that if I had been pointing to Jesus for that, that Jesus would come and either be in prison with me or rescue me from it, or He would bring judgment upon the ones who should receive judgment because of their sin if they had denied and rejected God. I met with a good friend of mine this past week, and as I met uh, with him, we were talking through some things, and there was this sense of justice that he has, clear. He was right. But he was wanting to see justice in some way exacted. And it wasn't. It wasn't being done. And there was a wondering, when is it going to be done? When is this going to be taken care of? And that's similar to what John the Baptist is struggling with while he's in prison. When is justice going to come? He didn't fully understand all that the Messiah would do or when he would do it. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. He sends John's disciples back with firsthand evidence and a word of reassurance. We looked at this a few weeks ago, and you will in your connect groups in Luke's Gospel. But Luke's Gospel tells us not just that Jesus sent them back. He sent them back with first-hand evidence. Luke chapter 7 and verse 21 reads, And when the men had come to Him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, meaning right then, in that very time when Jesus had those men that he sent, it says in that hour, he, meaning Jesus, healed many diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Look at what Jesus does. Look back in verse, in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Go and tell John what you hear and see. And what does he point him to? Well, notice he points John the Baptist back to Old Testament phrases that explain what these men have seen. So take your Bibles and turn over to Isaiah chapter 35 and then find chapter 61 and let's look at them. Because there are two things that happen here. Jesus recalls these phrases. I believe that he also knows, I believe this, that he also knows that John the Baptist knows the rest of what's in the book. Isaiah chapter 35. Look at verse 3. says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come uh, with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Jesus doesn't recall this part, but he recalls the next part. 
But I believe he knows that John knows the part that precedes this part. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Look over in chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what else? And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint, of faint, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Why look at these passages? Why point John back to these things? Jesus is pointing him back to these things for two reasons. One, he wants John to be reminded that the things that his disciples have seen, the reports that he has heard, are things that can only be done by God. It's interesting that he mentions the blind. Um, kind of looking through the text you know there is no occasion in the old testament that we have any prophet that had ever healed the blind the the dead had been raised but the blind had never been given sight jesus gives sight to the blind and there's no testimony beyond jesus even with the apostles and the miracles that took place that the blind were ever given sight it's crystal clear that these are the things that only God can do. But the other part of that is, is John is struggling because it doesn't seem like justice has come with the Messiah. And what is it that Jesus does as he points him back to these texts? I believe the broader context is, is that he is pointing him back to be reminded that God will exact justice in God's timing. Booney referred to it just a moment ago. It's clear. John didn't have a full understanding of all that the Messiah would do and when. It was clear that there were unmet expectations. So how do we deal with doubt? If doubt, in fact, comes to the faithful, and John the Baptist serves as an example of that, if doubt comes to those who are faithful, well, we rest in what the Word of God says even when we don't fully understand it. We wait patiently on the Lord to do His work. We spoke of this last week, but I want to remind you again that each week we rehearse the truth of God's work. We talk about His atoning work in Christ. We rehearse that God is sovereign that He is just, that He's loving and gracious. 
Is that because we don't have anything else to talk about? Well, there's a lot of things that could be that we could say, but we rehearse these things because those are the most important things because those are the things that we rest in even when we are uncertain, even when we are in times where our patience, we're struggling with that, in times when we are doubting and struggling, we rehearse those things because those are the things that we rest in. John the Baptist, a cousin of Jesus, in prison, for pointing people to Jesus and for standing for truth and for calling out sin and calling people to repent. In prison, struggling, and Jesus sends back a word of encouragement. Not just that, yes, I'm Him, but reminding Him of the truth of God's Word. And it is there that that rest will look as we work through Matthew's Gospel and we'll find out that John the Baptist's life ended by having uh, his head cut off. I believe John took courage in the things that he heard. Yeah, I don't understand when God's justice is going to be exacted. But he is going to bring it about. I don't know these things about when God is going to do his work. Or maybe I, I don't feel today... Uh, I don't feel today empowered by the faith that He has given me. But He has given me faith to believe. And I want to interject something here. And this has been bearing on me as I've looked at this passage of Scripture over and over for the last several weeks. It reminded me of this. If you're waiting to have everything worked out in your mind and heart perfectly before you profess faith in Christ, just remember that even faithful believers at times have doubts. Hear that again. If you're waiting to have everything worked out perfectly to where you think that I have no doubts, there's nothing that I can doubt, even faithful believers have doubts. Think on that. Not only do we see that there is a faithful servant who have doubts, we see that Jesus supports and defends His servant. Notice what Jesus says about John the Baptist. He says five things, and I want us to look at them here from the text. First, he points to John and he said that John had the most unique task. Look at what he says there uh, in, uh, in verse 10. He is the one whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He had the most unique task. He had been sent as the specific forerunner of the Messiah. Now, we read on down and we find out that the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So all of the prophets and the law pointed to Christ. But look how significant John the Baptist's place was in the course of redemptive history. He was the one who came 
as a contemporary of the incarnate God, living at the same time, ministering in the same field, crossing paths with Him, pointing to Him specifically, God in the flesh, and saying, here is the Messiah. He had an understanding of Christ that the other prophets and the law did not have in that sense. And yet, we see that even in the course of that, he still had some doubt when uh, he was in a place where things were being pressed in on him. The point is, is Jesus defends him by saying, there's no other person in history like him. He is my direct forerunner. The second thing he says, notice, is that John was the greatest human born of woman. In verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That was a significant statement. Now, he's setting this up to compare, but he's saying, listen, as people are there, they're wondering, here John the Baptist has been pointing to you, and he has questioned, his disciples have come and now has questioned about you. And Jesus points back to John and he said, don't be condemning of him. There's no one, there's no one that's ever lived that's greater than John the Baptist. Notice what else he says. He said, though as being Christ's forerunner, he's defending uh, his doubting and he's pointing to them and saying that he had limited revelation look on what he says he says yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he you ever thought about that jesus is pointing to john the baptist and said there's no one greater than him at this point but even 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 the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him jesus is pointing to the fact that john the baptist had he, he, he had limited revelation he represented the first covenant. Jesus was establishing the better covenant, the best covenant, the covenant that God had intended to bring about. And John, even looking at Jesus, had not yet seen and would not see the death and witness the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And yet all of those who would come into the kingdom of heaven pointing back to the resurrected Christ as we who profess Christ now are in that group. We're pointing back to something that could be witnessed. Eyewitnesses of those who had seen the resurrected Christ. John the Baptist hadn't seen that. He was pointing ahead as all of the other prophets, but he was the most close to him and pointing to him. Notice what else Jesus says about John the Baptist. He said he was bringing in the day of the Lord. Look in verse 14. He said, and if you're willing, Jesus said of John the Baptist, <clears throat> and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Turn back over to Malachi chapter 4 in just a minute. Last book in the Old Testament. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel? Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, the great and awesome the great and awesome day of the Lord who comes. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a degree of utter destruction. What's the point? There was a looking toward an Elijah coming. We look at the Gospels and John the Baptist is identified as that. Jesus is pointing and saying, he said, if you will listen, you will know that he has come and that the day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh, is now in view. It is in full sight. He said, Elijah the one that you're looking for, He has come. And if you will receive Him as that and see Him as that, you will understand that salvation has come. But not only is salvation come in the kingdom, the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming. What was it that, Elijah, uh, that John the Baptist wanted to know? He wanted to know if Jesus the Messiah, the sent one, if salvation had come. And he was wanting to know, has judgment come? And Jesus sent him word back, first-hand witnesses of the fact that he was doing what only God can do and that judgment was, in fact, coming. And then finally, Jesus points to the validity of John's message and then concludes that John was not accepted. Look there in verse 14 again. And if you're willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you are in the sound of this, you need to pay attention to the significance of John's role in redemptive history. And then in verse 16, Jesus goes on to say, but what shall I compare this generation? He hadn't left John the Baptist. Now he's saying something about the generation and the people who had been privileged to hear all of this and see all of this and witness John the Baptist and, 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 and witness the testimony of John pointing to Jesus and witnessing the testimony of this one who uh, after a long period of silence had come and spoken for God and in speaking for God after this long period of silence had pointed to those who were sinning and said to the poor, you're sinning and you need to repent. He had said to the soldier, you're sinning and you need to repent. He had said to the tax collector, you're sinning and you need to repent. And he had said to the politician, you're sinning and you're needing to repent. After all those years of silence, God didn't come in a way that would be palatable to the generation. He came with a call to repentance. And Jesus says, and how has, what, what does this look like in the course of the generation? He said, it's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. Now, picture children running around playing. Picture our children when we raise this curtain 
fact, probably before we raise the curtain, they'll be shooting under the curtain or around the curtain. Picture them running and playing and doing all the things that they do here. And then Jesus said, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance and we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. He's setting up a comparison here. In other words, uh, we played and we were having fun and no one got it. And then even when we played something that was somber and a funeral dirge, no one got it. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he was a demon. That was John. He said, now comparing him to him. He said, now I came, the Son of Man came, eating and drinking. And they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, we don't like either one of you. In other words, we don't relate to either one of you. Jesus said that John was misunderstood and rejected. And he said, and I'm misunderstood and rejected. In other words, everything that God has sent you to point you to Him, you have rejected. But then Jesus concludes, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In other words, the truth is known about you. John and his ministry and life and witness has given testimony of who you are. And I have given witness and testimony to who you are. By what? By the way that you have received what God has said. Let's press into this a little bit. And then, in verse 20, listen. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because, what? They did not repent. Because they did not repent. In other words, all of these miracles were to the end that people would repent. All of his works was to the end that they would repent. Every healing was to the point that people would recognize the hand of God and the power of God toward their repentance, their turning away from their sin and turning to God. Did you know that all of God's mercy toward us is toward the end that we would repent? Think about it. He's fed you. He's clothed you. He's clothed me. He's taking care of us. You know, we often say, well, and, it, and it's true. The Bible says that God uh, reigns on the just and the unjust. To what end? That they would repent. He feeds the just and the unjust to the, to the end of what? To the end that they would recognize Him and see Him and repent. He's merciful to us toward that end. And He said, and here, these cities, and he's going to name them, these cities have seen most of his great works to the end that they would repent, but they did not. And then he names them, Woe to you, Chorazim. 
Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now you have to go back and you'd have to look and understand uh, who he's talking about when he's talking about Tyre and Sidon. He's talking about two cities, two groups of people, two sets of people that had supported and even celebrated the destruction of God's people. And God judged them for that. But here we see that Jesus himself says, had they seen the works that you have seen, they would have repented. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He goes on and says, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? It's a rhetorical question. Will you be exalted to heaven? Listen, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, who is the word for rebellion and sin, when we are talking about the most sinful, even then, what did they talk about? They talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, if that had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day rather than being destroyed and there being no trace of it. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. The mercy and work of God in our midst is toward the end that we would repent, that we would believe, and that we would trust. Why is it important that we share the gospel, that we speak truth in the culture that we live in, that we live it, we uphold it, and we point people to the gospel? Is it because we want judgment to be harder on them? No, we're not doing it for that. We're doing it because God sends us into the world because His mercy and grace toward the culture for there to be witness and testimony of light is important so that they will come to know that He is God. And it is a gracious and merciful thing on the part of God to bring the Word and call to repentance. And we see that. Notice what he says in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. We speak of God's sovereignty, we talk of His grace and mercy. And we talk about the gospel. 
Listen, God owes no one a hearing of the gospel. But recall from last week, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into his harvest field. That is the grace of God. And you know what? That grace and mercy has been displayed here again today. For all of you who haven't trusted Christ, be reminded today that God has been gracious and merciful in pointing you to His glory in Christ. And believer, know that today in your hearing, you have heard again of the work of God in Christ for His name's sake, coming out of His steadfast love as we heard from the 109th Psalm, coming to us to strengthen our faith and to remind us that He has been merciful and gracious to us in Christ. And we didn't deserve it. And He didn't owe it. But by His will, He has granted it. It's tremendous. It's a tremendous work.